Hello, and welcome to our Asian American Studies podcast. Today's episode is Beyond Polite Conversations. I'm Grace. I'm a second year physics major. I'm Miranda Fullman. I'm a first year gender studies major. And I'm Julie, a third year studio art major. Today we are joined by the fantastic Reverend Linda Morgan Clement, uh, the Julie S. Hervis Dean of Spiritual and Religious Life and the chaplain of Lawrence University. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. So in this podcast, we're hoping to explore the complexities of your personal experiences. So our interest in your personal stories, inspired by our exposure to family and personal narratives in our Intro to Asian American Studies class, we want to have a conversation about adoption, family, identity, and religion in order to learn a little bit more about you and how you interact with the world. We have found that opening conversations on important topics like these can make some people uncomfortable. Um, However, this vulnerability is what fosters reflection and potential change in an individual's perspective on not only other people's identities, but your own personal identity as well. Um, So to start off, could you tell us about your family since they play a crucial role in forming identity? Sure. So I'm adopted. I came to the U.S. when I was 18 months old. I'm the oldest of six children. So when my parents, right, I know, Grace, when my parents um, decided to adopt because they were not successful having children, my mother always wanted children. And when they, my adoption story is interesting a little bit because they decided to adopt me in those days you were not able to travel as well. So they literally picked me out of a picture book. Um, And I look at my baby pictures and sometimes I'm like, why did you pick that baby? (laughs) I had very spiky hair. And they were approved for the adoption. And then the United States changed its um, immigration rules and they had to start all over. So it took 18 months to get me to come to the States. And in the meantime, my mother did get pregnant again. And my sister and I are 21 months apart, but we showed up in their lives within three months. So my sister and I are very close to each other. We tease that we're twins born 21 months apart. And then my two brothers, my three brothers came along, sort of spread out. And then um, my parents decided they had three boys and two girls and they needed to balance everything out. And so my youngest sister is adopted and she's half African-American. So that's like the basic frame of what my family is. So you just told us sort of like a brief um, history of your adoption story. And similar to me as an adoptee, I grew up having to explain my adoption (laughs) story to each new person when I was talking about my family. Um, Very similarly, I have, you know, four other siblings and we're all Mm. adopted. Um, So I feel like I've repeated this story so many times that, you know, it's ingrained in my memory. You're absolutely right. No, I don't have memories. So I'm really telling the story that someone else told me as if, I I mean, I guess it's true. Everybody tells their birth stories and Mm. they don't remember them either. But so my story has actually changed over the years. Um, when I was, well, probably until I was even in my 40s, the story was told that, so when I came to the States, there were very few Asian or interracial adoptions. And um, my parents said that, and they, they were told that I was 
abandoned within hours of birth on the steps of a school, of a public school, found there by someone who took me to the orphanage. They picked me out of the picture book, so the chosen child. And then my mother said it was the hardest labor and delivery she had of all of her children because she had to wait 18 months. They had to keep going back for paperwork. They didn't know, you know, what was happening. Um, other over time, though, and especially when I was close to 40, the story changed. So one of the themes that I had in my adoption a lot was people would say to me, oh, you're so lucky. You recognize that, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I carried that a lot. I, I kept thinking like, you know, if I had been left in Hong Kong, I would be dead. And that very well could be true. But I think I was maybe in high school when I was really fortunate because even though my parents didn't have anything like the resources that there are now, um, when, well, when I was in grade school, my mother went hunting, like early grade school, kindergarten, hunting, hunting, because I wanted a doll and she couldn't find an Asian doll. So she made one. And I still have this doll. She's, she's like the size I was when I came and my mom dresses her, dressed her, she, she is dressed in the clothes I wore when I came to the US. And my mom started saying to me in high school, she said, well, you know, other people think you're the lucky one, but we're the lucky ones. So that also sort of helped me shift my story. And then when I was in my 40s, I was fortunate enough to go to an international conference and I met a woman there who said to me, she's a sociologist at a, actually from the US at one of the colleges in the US. And she said that there was now evidence that in terms of the Asian adoptions, there probably was in many countries an underground like Asian network where people knew where they could take the babies. And sometimes, the children were even fostered by their own parents as they waited for adoption. So I don't necessarily talk about that part of my adoption story, but it really changed the way I thought about it. Um, I mean, I, I did sort of live with the, my mother loved me enough to give me up because her life was going to be hard and harder with me and my life would be hard if I were with her. So, and when I became a mother, that took on all kinds of new meaning because I thought I couldn't, I don't even know if I were asked to give up my children. Yeah, I totally resonate with that story. Um, I always hear, at least from my mom and, you know, definitely other people of like, you know, this was a really, you know, fortunate opportunity for you. You know, you don't know what your life would have been like back in China, um, especially for both my brothers and um, my youngest brother who has clubbed feet, you know, there was the potential uh -huh. that he couldn't potentially walk when he gets older um, if he didn't get the surgery that he got after coming to America. Um, so I definitely relate to all of the things that you were saying, especially the way your story changes over time. Mm -hmm. um, for me, it also happened around a similar time in high school, which is kind of strange. Um, but for my college essay, I sort of wrote about the relationship between me and my mom and sort of confronting, 
you know, mm-hmm. parts of the hidden emotions that I had regarding my adopt my adoption and, you know, growing up with a parent who doesn't look like you right? Um, and, you know, a parent who can't completely involve you in a culture that you're sort of both a part of, but also mm-hmm. not a part of because you just don't grow up in, you know, the same way that maybe um, your friends have who might have like immigrant parents and have experienced similar, but also very different um, uh you know, Asian American experiences. Um, And in one of the articles that we are looking at regarding adoption, um, you know, like you said, there's sort of this talk about, uh, the author describes it as a lifelong public relations campaign of adoption, because you're always (laughs) trying to paint it in this way that's um, positive, that people... Mm -hmm are, you know, these families are saving you. But yeah, my mom is very much similarly in agreement that she was very much uh, blessed by uh, us coming into our lives. Um, And adoption as well is a really important word, I think, in the field of Asian American studies. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Choi, you know, talks about how it sort of gives depth to the Asian American demographic. Um, cultural expression, contemporary issues, and history. And so um, part of this is like the idea of global family making, which is de- which mm-hmm. she describes as the process through which people create and sustain a family by um, consciously crossing nations and often racial borders. Um, so this makes me wonder, like, how has adoption influenced the way you define family? Um, unlike a number of other adoptees, I have not, and I think maybe it's the story I was told and that I believe and and when I was adopted, but I haven't felt like I needed to go back. I think there've been times where I have felt ambivalent about claiming my family's history because both my parents are white. My father comes from a Welsh background. My mother comes from, she calls herself a British mutt. So like just And we have a family farm that has been in the family. My mother's a daughter of the revolution. And so that's like this kind of weird overlap. I have, you know, I haven't, I was naturalized, so I haven't been a U.S. citizen all my life. And yet my family has this historical geographical place in U.S. history. My mom used to say when my, so my sister and I are 11 years apart, my youngest sister, um, but she would go places with the three of us. And sometimes people would be like, oh, those are beautiful children. You know, who, which one Which one is yours or something like that. Um, and my mom would, be, would say, they're all mine. They just have different fathers. <laughs> and then people would shut up. <laughs> um, sort of touching more on like what you talked about, that clash between, you know, your personal experience with, the perceptions of like outside people. Um, In one of the articles, um, Choi expresses like the narratives of global family making are often portrayed as like virtuous or um, as like a desirable way to create a family. So I was just sort of wondering like, what is your reaction to the way this is portrayed for, you know, adopted families? families as being virtuous and desirable. I think my sense is often that the parents are virtuous. 
like not necessarily kids. Um, and I, I think of it more, so not necessarily from my own experience, from experiences I had with other children who were internationally and cross-racially adopted that we would run into. For some reason, and I don't actually even know what it was, except that my parents, I think, didn't see themselves as virtuous in doing it. And in fact, um, in my fam, in my extended family, there were a number of people in my extended family who said that was like a terrible thing to do, like, and not in so not so maybe not so nice ways. And it got worse when my sister was adopted. Um, so it was usually strangers who had that idea, but the immediate family was more. I mean. It was mixed, but some in the immediate family were like, eh. And even my two of my cousins, my mother's sister adopted her two children, but they were not cross-racial adoptions. So it was also a time in US history where there was a lot of back and forth about whether cross interracial adoptions were actually virtuous or were negative. I think it puts a lot of pressure on both the parents and the child to succeed, sort of to live up to that. Um, and maybe even more if you've adopted like Chinese girls because we're supposed to be all these great things that, um, and I don't, I mean, I wasn't, my mother used to say to me that I was the child that if she said, don't do this. Like if she said, don't put your hand on the stove, it's hot. I would put my hand on the stove. Like that's how she motivated me, <laughs> was to tell me not to do what she wanted me to do. Uh, so I definitely wasn't, did not fit the stereotype. And I think that also kind of, I don't know, I don't know if the word is surprised people, but confused people. So you talk about sort of being obviously very aware of these stereotypes and not seeing yourself as fitting those molds. Was there ever a time where you felt like conflicted between those two of like needing, of like having to conform to those expectations of others? Well, okay, so what's really, I think the reason I didn't when I, in terms of, I grew up in cities in South Dakota and then in uh, Sheboygan, Wisconsin. I was in Oshkosh for a little while, but basically, <laughs> yeah, I was the, um, I was the only Asian until after college in any of the communities I was in. So then it was the not being Chinese enough, not knowing the language. Mm -hmm. um, and even like when I was a kid, my mom tried to get me to take Chinese lessons. Oh, I'm gonna have any of that. I would rather go outside and play or read a book. So that, I mean, that is one of my regrets in my life is that I didn't take Chinese when my brain was not yet so rigid that I could have learned it. Um, but it's really, it had really has been more when my conflict about not being who the stereotypes would want me to be is doesn't seem, I don't feel like I have that conflict 
much at all when I'm with non-Asian people, but when some sometimes when I'm with Asian people and maybe especially Asian men, mm-hmm. it makes me feel feisty, but I also feel the conflict, both, everything, right? <laughs> yeah, I can certainly relate to that, especially uh, you talk about, you know, I uh, talk about being around other Asian people with those experiences. Um, definitely, I had like a friend group who predominantly were had Asian parents who immigrated to the USA oh. and like had the ability to sort of switch between those two languages mm-hmm. and if they ever wanted to talk about somebody in the room and you know about them and they don't want them to know they'd switch into you know whatever Mandarin or uh, Taiwanese and sort of feeling that isolation as well mm-hmm. and that conflict of like not feeling Asian enough um, if I could jump in, um, if you were comfortable with this, um, could you talk about a moment where you struggled with your identity as an adoptee? So I grew up, so I was born in 1959. And so I was in grade school during the Vietnam War. And maybe this is back to a little bit to what you were saying, talking about Julie. I, so let me, me, um, a couple things. One was the little boys used to like to shoot me. And that was, yeah, it was kind of crappy. And I would get really angry with them. And I was really hurt and I didn't understand it because I was like third grade and I was not watching the news knowing what's going on in Vietnam. And like my brain says, they were either, they were just acting out what they saw being acted out. When I would go home though, and tell my mom, like the neighbor boy shot me, (laughs) um, she would say things like, it's not because of you, it's because of him. And you should feel sorry for him because he's uneducated and and he's being mean because he doesn't know. And I, I carried that around for a long time. And it also, and I didn't really realize this till, till later, I didn't realize it till my own daughter actually was born, that it was really, I mean, she wasn't, asking me not to be hurt so that she wouldn't be hurt, but I was hurt and it meant I didn't have any place to go with that. And it was sort of, in a way, it was the thing that people talk about today being like, oh, we're all just be colorblind because it wasn't happening to my sister who was blonde with blue eyes. And I didn't want it to happen to my sister, but it didn't make sense to me when she said it isn't about you. I totally get that um and I relate to that idea of like my mother trying to keep me internalizing the the outward hatred um because I was a very visibly gender non-conforming child in in my youngest years and then once I hit middle school and high school I was very visibly queer and anyone's immediate reaction in the rural conservative area that I grew up in was to just hate for hate's sake um 
as a as a gender studies major, I focus a lot on how the facets of a person's identity make up how they view and interact with the world. Um, so I wanted to ask, do you necessarily um, focus on each individual part of your identity as, you know, an adoptee, an Asian woman, um, or is it more of a sum of all its parts sort of situation? For me now, it's a sum of all my parts. I think as a child, all the way through college, I was probably assembling those parts, <laughs> like trying to figure out what each of them meant or did. I, for a long time, I didn't, I didn't like being Chinese because I lived in these areas where to be beautiful, you had to be blonde. Um, and it wasn't blonde. And even when I tried to dye my hair blonde, nothing happened because it was really dark. And I was never going to have blue eyes. Like I, to this day, I kind of wished I had green eyes, but I, that won't work either. Um, so I focused on my smarts because I could do that part. And then that reinforced the stereotype. I think I'm not super good at math. Um, I'm much more outgoing now than I was. So I think the quiet stereotype got reinforced. But I think those were more way, the ways people saw me from the outside in pieces than the way I was seeing and constructing myself from the inside. Because I, I very much think in like Venn diagrams, like all these things are overlapped and I'm the whatever that flower thing in the middle is, where, where all those pieces that other people think are themselves a, a whole construct, right? Are, I'm, it's some of this, like the not being enough, not being, all the not, all my not beings, not enough of, like I'm not, not, like I'm not this and I'm not that and I'm not this. Those actually construct a thing that I am in a positive sense. Yeah, I, I really love that analogy. Um, I think for me anyway, especially still being a first year, I'm still constructing myself and putting the pieces of me together. Um, but it's, it's lovely to get to hear somebody's perspective of who's gone through the, the work of having to decide who they are. Um, in the first week of Intro to Asian American Studies, we read an article by Robert Chang called Becoming Asian American. Within it, he says, one is not born Asian American, one becomes one. Um, and we've talked about this a little bit or danced around it maybe, but did you feel like you had to become American or even if you felt like you had to become more Chinese in a way because you were adopted? Well, I mean, I literally had to become American because I had to be naturalized. <laughs> I was British. <laughs> um, I felt, I think I would say I felt like I couldn't become American. So I had to become Asian American. I have been super interested with the epigenetics conversations because throughout my life, there have been these things that have happened, like weird things, like the first time I picked up chopsticks, I figured out how to use them. And that, that's not such an easy thing, right? Usually you get the little, the rubber bands on the end or the little people with the feet, but I could do that. And when I was pregnant with my daughter, I was very, very clear that I did not want, I wanted her to sleep with me. And I did not want like a separate, people were like, well, do you want a crib? And I'm like, no, I don't want a crib. And I want to carry her around. And I, that, that just, 
and that that wasn't my experience growing up. That's not what my mother did. We had playpens because there were a lot of us. Uh, and I met, I was working in a, had worked in a Chinese restaurant and I was talking to my friends there and they said, oh, that's just how Chinese mothers take care of their babies. They carry them around. Haven't you seen that? Like they carry them around. And I carried my daughter around and it was exactly what both of us needed. And I feel like those things are sort of that epigenetic culture carried in the body without cognitive sense. And there's just been like all these other things where I, I know what some food is that my mother has no clue. And so I don't know where how I know this food, but I know it. I, I love the conversation on epigenetics um, because I think it really adds into this idea that we are more than our, our upbringing. Um, you know, mm -hmm. the, the debate between nature and nurture is so tied together. Um, and I'm of the opinion that there's more involved. I may think that how you're brought up can have a larger impact in some ways, but little things creep through with epigenetics. Mm -hmm. um, like we've talked about, uh, you were adopted. Um, so has your family changed the way you view yourself? Okay, I'll use this as an opportunity to talk about my family now. My daughters have so changed how I think about my identity and everything. And I guess in some ways that's quintessential mother. Um, but also just like when my daughters experienced racism, and I don't know if you experienced this, Julie, like I'm thinking about like your immigrant friends. I don't know how their parents told them to handle like racism or just kids being mean because you have race. Yeah. Um, but I echoed their like anger and fear and didn't feel right saying to them, well, you should feel sorry for like I still do feel sorry for these folks, but I'm also like, eh, <laughs> you know, you need to get your shit together. And so that was a very different experience for her because she had permission to feel what she was feeling because I was feeling what she was feeling. And I think that changed that sort of redacted or shifted that early message that was like somehow I didn't, the way I took it in was like, because, not because I was adopted, but for some reason I shouldn't feel what I felt because the dominant culture didn't want me to feel that. So I was policing myself a lot more. Um, my family, so I'm in a, um, I'm in a biracial marriage. And I think that has both shifted and reinforced some of my identity things. So Mike and I get in these really weird conversations about like racism and bias. And it's kind of cool to have a lot more information out now about like how anti-Asian racism works because it, it does articulate things I've felt all along and haven't really, because of the way race is talked about in this country, been able to articulate. 
So I, I guess, is it my family? Well, I'll give you one other piece, which is, this is a little disconnected and I, I'm sorry. My nephew is Chinese and similar to your brother, maybe he came to the, he, he he's 10 and he just had his final surgery. He came because he needed these massive surgeries because he had a cleft palate and he just had his last surgery. And it's very cool for me when, he, his name is Hugh, when he shows up, when we're, when we're together with my brother and him, that we have this now, like really, bi I mean, he's not biological, but my girls are, are biracial. And then me and my youngest sister, who's African-American, and then she married a white guy. So then those kids are biracial. And then Hugh, like that global family that you're talking about constructing, it wasn't, it didn't happen in the adoption, but as a result of the adoptions, it has happened. And now we are all like, you know, I guess he was not, but physically, biologically related in different ways. Gotcha. I, I love that. Um, I think, I think I have the, the smallest perspective on, um, I guess, like, interracial and biracial families here because my family is basically purely German and Dutch. Um, but I, I just, I love getting to hear about uh, different perspectives because I grew up in such a small community. Um, and I think that's one of the beautiful about in Lawrence anyway, is that it really, for being in Wisconsin, it really opens everything up. Yeah. Um, at the beginning of the term, uh, we were given uh, an icebreaker sheet. Uh, we called it a conocimiento activity sheet um, with questions <laughs> to help us begin thinking about different aspects of the course, including identity. Um, this was one that stood out to me in particular because it was aimed at students asking each other this question, but I wanted your mm -hmm. input as a faculty member who has gone through college and now works at the university. <laughs> so. Has college life, including either working here or um, during your college years, or being at Lawrence in particular, changed your way of identifying? Hmm. So I think it, my college years did, because as I said, I grew up way more similar to you, Ren. So going to college, there were... I don't think there were any other, it was a, it was a, it, I went to Carroll in Waukesha, uh, I, but I don't think at that time there were any other Asians, Asian went writ large, um, but there was a large group of folks from Chicago, African-Americans from Chicago. And I think that experience, that really is the group I, I just, that's where I hung out. Um, and I think that, I can't tell you exactly how, but I think that really shifted my identity as a person of color in a predominantly white community. While I've been at Lawrence, so much has happened in the world. And I think it has led me to rethink sort of the history of the identities I carry in terms of being female, being Asian, having international, not being queer, 
um, being an intellectual, being middle, upper middle class, my socioeconomic background, like what constructs do I carry within myself that are actually even in conflict with each other? Like how, how do I think about the ways in which I've, in which letting yourself be colonized gains privilege and what do you lose at the price of that privilege? Like those questions have been more alive in what's going on nationally and with the rise of the anti-Asian sentiment. Like, I, I mean, I, I just worry more now because people hate Chinese people a lot more now than they did before I came to Lawrence, but it, that's not Lawrence. Yeah, I know one of the things that I've really experienced in my time at Lawrence has been um, a lot of diversity when it comes to religion. Mm. Um, yeah. And that is a big part of my upbringing as well as my college experience. And I spend um, a lot of time in the Spiritual and Religious Life Center. And as a dean of the Spiritual and Religious Life, I wanted to ask you how religion has shaped your life. So has it shaped your identity and does it shape what parts of your identity you claim as yours? Yes. 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 So my father is a Presbyterian minister, was a Presbyterian minister. He's dead now. And the families, like my uncles were Presbyterians and it's a big thing. And they were there. Well, my father, anyway, his, all of his social justice, um, all of his choices in life, um about how he would live and how he used his resources and how he raised his family and spent his time like uh, every one of those he articulated to us as coming from his religious convictions and i think when i feel like i'm not enough of anything like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not feminine enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not Chinese enough. I'm not white enough. I'm not an academic enough. I'm not like, I can do that really well to myself. The thing that keeps me going is like my early formative religious experiences of mystery and awe. And those I credit my father with like he would take us camping and we would go on the mountaintop and look at the stars every and, and you can't help but be awestruck and the vocabulary was given for that and the way I understood that was experiencing like infinite grace and mercy and that the universe is so much bigger than any of us that it's okay that we don't that we're not enough of anything because we're not expected to be enough. Like we're not supposed to be everything because God, that would be boring. So yes, my, and that shaped my life deeply that my, the sense of grace and mercy and awe. And then family, because what I, like we talked about my nuclear family, but really family was the entire church. I tell, I like, I laugh because we used to, we used to crawl under the pews like we had to be at church all the time because dad was at church all the time and my mom played the piano and was in the choir and did the youth group so like I had my first kiss in the church um 
we used to like run all over the place and own it. And and I still have these really fond memories because people, the six of us was a lot. Like we made messes all over the place and we were loved. So for me, and I do, I totally understand why some Christian communities and maybe even that Christian community, some people have religious trauma. But for me, it was a place where and I don't think I even got like, it, I don't think it was church where I ever got the, oh, you're so lucky or where did you come from? It was kind of the place I didn't have to explain myself. So that's not theological, but it was so deeply a part of my experience. It is experientially experiencing love um, and possibilities. And it wasn't just me, like it was all this whole group of kids that I grew up with, they, that church knew how to, even when we were like terrible teenagers, they, they knew how to love us. Yeah, absolutely. I think a big thing that goes along with church and a lot of religions and beliefs is the aspect of community. Um, And so I was wondering how your beliefs and your religion and upbringing in the church have impacted your relationships with other people. I mean, in some ways it's like family, like sometimes it's good and sometimes you just want to tear their hair out. Um, I th- but I think it taught me. And this, I would say also is theological or aspirational. Um, progressive Presbyterianism and the community, several communities I was able to be a part of taught me how to make room for people who were very, very different than me, whether that was just because they were very, very white, (laughs) but also who had really different sets of beliefs and practices and backgrounds. I think generally with, um, with church, it ironically fosters a lot of discussion and ability to learn about other religions and want to learn about other people's beliefs and how they came to them. And I took your class on interfaith dialogue and I love that class so much. Um, But I could see that you're really passionate about learning about other people's beliefs and religions. So I wanted to ask what fostered your love for learning about other religions and how you came about that passion. So I think it's because I'm adopted. So full circle, right? I felt enough exclusion in my life that I didn't want other people to feel that exclusion. I started out like academically, I started out learning about working on feminism. Then it moved to learning racial constructs and how interracial conversations, some of the pieces that we talked about like power dynamics and, assumptions and clarifying, listening beyond the, and narrative. Like, I I think all those things came out of actually work I had started doing um, in relationship to feminism or gender and, and race. For me, because I I am religious, even though many Christians wouldn't recognize me as, like, I'm, I'm, I'm religious in a intuitive emotional belief sense, but not, I am cognitively religious too. It makes sense to me. Those are the stories 
that make sense to me. Those are the stories of prompt, like for me, the biblical canon, like the ugly and the beautiful tells me what it is to be human in relationship with all. And I feel like that I want to have access to all of it. And that, so for me, interfaith is like inter, is like the non-dualist version of spirituality. I mean, in a concrete way, the part of the way I got really interested in it was because growing up, my we would we would go to the synagogue on a regular basis. Um, I got a chance to live in a Zen temple for a while. Um, I have friends who are Buddhist. I've fallen in love with the Muslim community, and it's the it's like that combined richness of what people bring and how that shapes their identity and the vocabulary and the the practices that make them more human. And I'm like, well, wow, you're a really cool human. I want to be more human too. All of that stuff is is um, having been in those situations feels to me like cross-cultural work. And I feel like from 18 months when they threw me on an airplane, I had no clue what was going on. And I had to learn an entirely new language and eat all kinds of really weird food. I've been crossing cultures. I remember in the class, you mentioning something about, of course, practicing Christianity, but also something about practicing Buddhism or observing some Buddhist rituals. Am I correct in remembering that? Yes, and Tai Chi. Regarding that, we talk in class about how a lot of times there's stereotypes associated with a lot of things. (laughs) And a lot of times race is associated with certain religions or people think that someone has to be a certain religion because of their race. Um, So I wanted to ask you how you came to practice your beliefs and what you think about that race aspect. So, yes, I think you're totally right. And I think it's all wrong. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Especially now, right? Because like, if we think about Islam, the largest is, I could be, I could be Muslim, right? I look closer to being Indonesian, which is the largest Islamic country in the world. But everybody thinks I should look Arab. Some of the largest Christian churches in the world are African, like African continent, and Korean China. It wasn't my meditation practice-ish came out of, so I never could meditate for many, many, many years, because like sitting still is like, what's that? Um, I started my Tai Chi because I couldn't sit still. um, And I was pregnant and I needed to keep moving. And there was a group in town that did Tai Chi. And I was like, well, that seems cool. I mean, probably started it just like, you know, anybody who wasn't Asian would start it. It was like, that seems cool. (laughs) Like the students at Lawrence do when they do Tai Chi with me. I did find myself and I continue to find myself really, really drawn to energy work. Like that connection beyond ourselves, whether it's the energy that connects us to the tree or the rocks underneath our feet or other humans. Um, So that's how I got into the Tai Chi. And it is a form of moving meditation. So it allows me. It allowed me to get out of my thinking head 
and to be grounded. Um, the meditation actually started because I was studying back to my feminism and the Christian piece. I was teaching a class called, um, well, it was feminist theologies reading out of the emerging world. So it was African feminist theology and Asian feminist theology that became Asian feminist theology. And I wanted my students to understand at a visceral level what it was like to be an immigrant and how for Asian immigrants that their religious tradition, whatever it was, allowed them to make sense of that experience. So I took students to Thailand and for a little while to Myanmar. And I, I made friends in Thailand. Like Thailand is kind of weirdly enough, I am Chinese ethnically, but Thailand feels like home. I get off the plane in Swarabum and I'm like, all those layers, all my like armor just sheds and I can just disappear into the city, right? And one of my friends there is, um, she's, she's actually, is a, she's a Buddhist nun. She studied Buddhism in the US. She went back to Thailand. She was teaching and she wanted to be a nun and the monks said no. So she had to go to Sri Lanka and be ordained. And she's just like this powerhouse kick ass Buddhist nun. Um, and she, when I took students there, she was like, I'm gonna teach you how to meditate because everybody needs to meditate. And we started with walking meditation and she's like, very serious about it. If you don't put your feet down right, she's like, get on it. <laughs> and, but, and so that was kind of my bridge was like walking meditation with her. her and she has a title, so she didn't, I mean, she, she has a name, but when you ordain in Buddhism and she's had death threats and but she just keeps going and ordaining people from all over the world because she's like, no, there need to be women in the Sangha because the men are messing it up. And she does it academically. She has a PhD in Buddhist studies and um, teaches about the texts and why people have read them wrongly over all the years. And then here, working with Connie, traveling to Nepal with Connie, being in India and Thailand with Connie and students, I and maybe I'm just old and so I can sit still now. I have developed my meditation practice and I don't see them at odds with each other at all that is so awesome I have a bit of a deep question as my last question but we wanted to okay. ask you how your religious practices and your spiritual beliefs shaped your outlook on life and death oh I love that question I, I, so and I don't mean this in a mean way I don't know how anyone faces our the reality that we are mortal without some kind of a spiritual belief and practice. Um, being a minister, I spend a lot of time with either people who are dying or people who've had someone die. So I do turn, I'll start with my practice. I turn to my practice when it's not cognitive, but I turned to my like I turned to my practice with trying to sort out how and what to do. I mean, when I say make sense, I don't mean make it okay. 
but where to even place like Brianna's death. Or I have a nephew who died by suicide. Um, or even when my father went for a stress test and failed like big time, meaning he died. We didn't think it was gonna happen. Everybody was like, yeah, it's just a stress test, right? Where do I, where do I put those things? Those, those things go, I, I mean, I have to, I have to sit. <laughs> I just have to sit. Um, and those things rip your world open. I think, I mean, it kind of rips your world open when your dog dies too. I've, I've had that experience then. And I think the fact that like believing in awe and grace and mercy and that there's more and that I'm not everything gives me a place to sit with it because I'm not I'm in my cognitive religious belief system. I don't, I worked really hard to get away from like God as my, my private magician. So I don't like, I, I try to share what's, what I'm aware of in the moment, like when I'm meditating, I don't think like I'm, I'm not actually, I do weird things with like Tibetan theology. Okay. Like I am, I think I will never not be in the way that Christianity constructs the, the world. And it, like, it really works for me to say, to be perfectly human is to be imperfect. Um, to be faithful is to be mortal. And that if I can assess my limitations or be aware of them, and maybe that's, here's the illusions, the grasping, the, like all the pieces of Buddhism, but then I can be content. Not, you know, not, and I don't mean that in a, in a sense of settling for, but content in that if the world is as it should be. And it's sometimes really ugly and sometimes really messy and sometimes so awe-inspiring you can't breathe. And sometimes so full of love that you just, all you can do is cry. And then Right. And, and I, and I think of that with people, like that's what allows us to have more grace and mercy is people are, people are like that, like amazing, amazing and shitty, like all at the same time. And yeah, so I think, um, I think I don't have a firm idea what happens after I die or someone dies, but I do have a firm trust that that's not the end and that helps me yeah I think a lot of times in this world where a lot of sad things happen and a lot of mm -hmm. terrible things take place uh, religion is where a lot of us are able to find a lot of comfort and contentness like you said mm -hmm. um, so that is a, always something that I think is amazing to hear about and how other people how they're able to find contentness and happiness, whether it's through religion or identity or however they view the world.
We're just so grateful and thankful that you took this time to chat with us today. Um, I think this experience has like helped, you know, a lot of us not only understand, you know, yourself, but later being able to reflect on, you know, our uh, starting goal of reflecting on our own personal identities as well. So thank I you so much. I appreciate that you shared pieces of who you are and your where your questions came from. Um, to wrap up, sort of, um, I heard a rumor from the upperclassmen that you will be retiring at the end of the year. Is I will be retiring. We're all very upset that you're leaving. I need to preface this because you have us all hooked now. Oh, um, well, thank you. But as, as a, a last question for the interview, um, do you have any words of wisdom for current and future Laurentians that may listen to this since we are uploading them for everyone on campus to listen to? Oh, yes. Let yourself become. Don't imagine just because the rest of, because you've declared a major or because you've chosen a school that the path is straight. Like enjoy, enjoy that. And I love what you said, Miranda, about still constructing. Um, the human brains and human societies create boxes so that we know how to function. But no one, no one lives in those boxes actually. Um, and they, they knock us out of shape. And you don't become by yourself, become in this great community. Being at Lawrence is such a wonderful experience, but don't go for the gusto. Calm the spirit space, sit on a cushion, breathe, cry. Ask really deep questions. Don't shy away from them. Because that's, that's, that, that's the gusto, not a million clubs, not six majors. Um, you, hopefully, you have a long life. And you got to ask really, really big questions because the world needs you to. Thank you so much. That is Thank a wonderful, you. I think, piece of advice. And certainly relates to, you know, my experience. So thank you so much. I, I have just thoroughly loved this podcast assignment because even while just setting up between Grace, Julie, and I, I've had yeah. to question myself a lot and my thoughts, especially when we started bringing in the idea of talking about religion. Um, yeah. I've had such a strange relationship with religion because of how I was raised and because of mm -hmm. how I identify as a person and how the world mm -hmm. tends to put both of those things into boxes. Um, but with this conversation, especially your discussion on like Tai Chi and energy work, it really resonates with me. It's been so wonderful talking to you. Um, and it's been so enjoyable. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of our Asian American Studies podcast. Special thanks to Linda Morgan Clement for joining us today and to Professor Sigma Cologne for the opportunity to explore how personal narrative can have the potential to foster change. Please be sure to check out the other episodes of this podcast series. We would love to see you in the spirit space. And remember that in the wise words of Linda, that we are all perfectly imperfect. <laughs>